but this morning we're going to be reading in chapter 8. In chapter 8, in verses 1 through 25, last, uh, we ended last week, and it ended with the death of Stephen. I promise nobody will die this morning, and there'll be no deaths in church, but the passage in the text, Stephen was stoned. And so as we open up verse 8, I'll be reading um, chapter 8, and it's 1 through 25, and I'll be reading out the New King James and the Holman Christian. So starting off, and it says in chapter 8, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. Then he, bap- he was baptized. He continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. When the apostles were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them, so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this power to me, too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Shall we open in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth it gives to us. I pray that you would help us to understand as we study through here that uh, you have worked through different people's lives. And this historical record helps us to understand what took place here, but also how to apply it to our own lives. So I pray that uh, you would guide us. May your Holy Spirit teach us and uh, convict us. But above all, may we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As we look this morning, uh, the title of the message is that God, can God use anyone? And the answer is, God can use anyone. 
And so as you go ahead and advance that s- slide, it's uh, looking at chapter 8, 1 through 25, we must remember it's not about our influence or our abilities. And we're going to look at three examples here. But what does it mean to be used by God? First, it begins with a, a new relationship of salvation. Second, it involves uh, spiritual growth and growing in our faith and understanding of ourselves. See, being used by God is not dependent upon our abilities or our talents, but upon our willingness to obey and to follow after him. See, often in the United States and where we live, things are dependent upon us. We learn what it means to kick up your bootstraps, to just do the work. Sometimes we need to learn more of that. But understanding in in our spiritual lives, God is God and we are not. And so we must be willing to be used by him. And sometimes God puts us in circumstances in an, in an environment that isn't always comfortable. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes being in an uncomfortable environment is not that fun. Um, you know, sometimes the first time you had to do a speech class. Maybe you never had a speech class in high school or college and you're up there and they always say, you know, imagine, you know, everyone else doesn't have clothes on. It's like, wait a second, that's not necessarily the best view but you're nervous and uh, you don't know what to say. Or maybe you have to give a presentation. Maybe you have to um, perform and uh, do something for other people in front of others. And, but when it comes to our spiritual lives, here it is God who is, gives the empowerment. And we see that working in and through individuals' lives in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at three examples of how God uses people. The first one is going to be a negative example on the next slide. The second one is going to be a positive example. And the third will be a precautionary or more of a, of a cautionary. And to kind of, okay, be a warning. So first, as we think about examples, just a, a bad example. Many of you have probably had a bad example in your life. I think about there's a professor at Texas A&M. And what happened is in the veterinary school, there was five-year students uh, were receiving their first anatomy class with a real dead cow. They all gathered around the surgery table with the body covered by a white sheet. The professor started the class by saying, in veterinary medicine, it's necessary to have two important qualities as a doctor. The first is that you not be disgusted by anything involving the animal body. As an example, the professor pulled back the sheet, stuck his finger in the butt of the dead cow, withdrew it, and stuck his finger in his mouth. Go ahead and do the same thing, he told the students. The students were all freaking out, like grossed out, and like, what in the world? They hesitated for several minutes, but eventually they took turns sticking in and doing the same thing and sucking on it. When everyone finished, the professor looked at him and said, the second most important quality is observation. I stuck in my middle finger and then sucked on my index finger. Now learn to pay attention. <laughs> That's not necessarily a good example. I wouldn't recommend doing that. But, but what we have here in Acts is, in Acts 8, we have a, a bad example, if you will. But a bad example can be used by God. We've learned by bad examples. Because sometimes when we see a bad example, we know we're not going to do that. Or maybe it's been in parenting. Maybe it's been in our lives, at work, you know, oh, if you've ever worked on a farm and really worked really hard and, and in a haymow or, throw, or done something really hard work, you're like, I, I'm never going to do that when I grow up. But some people love it. But a bad example, as we see here in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, 
we see here that God uses Saul. Now, Paul is often used as an example in um, the Bible, but before he was Paul, if you will, Saul. This is a negative example, and here, Saul was an unbeliever. And God does not always intervene directly in the life of unbelievers, but he can use them to accomplish his purpose. And Saul was the antagonist to the gospel. He was against the gospel. First of all, his position. He was a Pharisee. And if you think about the position, that God uses people in different positions, maybe to antagonize you or to oppose you. But Saul was a Pharisee. He was one of the old order. And what I mean by that is the Pharisee, he studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the high priest at that time. And everything had to happen a certain way, the teaching. And the Pharisees were the ones who knew the law. And all the teachings of Jesus were against the law, the religious order. Here Saul was influential and possessed authority to assent to the death of Stephen. As you look back in chapter 7, and even as they were stoning Jesus, Stephen, verse 79, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and do not lay charge with them against them. But in verse 58, it says, they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it wasn't just like, oh, a young boy here, stand here. Saul was one who was there and present. And uh, his position granted him a certain authority but also not only the position but the practice and as we think about the practice how God uses negative events even in our lives but let's look at what takes place here the practice Paul in practice was not only an unbeliever and in an influential position as a religious leader he wasn't just quiet he was active and what he did he it says he ravaged the church and um, persecution he was persecuting home churches. At that time, they, they didn't meet nice buildings. They met in people's homes. But he had the authority to go in um, to Jewish homes and drag people off to prison. And persecution leads to fear or death in the lives, fear or faith in the lives of believers. When we are faced with persecution, some, some turn away, some grow stronger in the faith. Saul was a name that invoked fear, and he hated Christians. He was also used to spread the gospel to other regions. And we must not be isolationists. God desires that believers are witnesses for others. Must, you, as you look at it, our faith, our, our relationship with Christ must be viewed or witnessed by others. That's what it means. And by someone else. And in practice, as we see people who oppose the gospel, as we interact with them, it doesn't mean that we just go hide, you know, oh, you know what, someone doesn't like me because I'm a Christian. We mustn't necessarily do that. But God used Saul, and we see what takes place here, because this, as he was an antagonist to the gospel, the gospel as actually spread. If you look in chapter 8, and as it says in verse uh, one, as Saul was consenting to his death, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. See, they all stayed there, the faith, they wanted to grow, they wanted to stay together. But they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And they moved on, and we see that there was growth. And even verse 4 says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the gospel. So the practice of Saul, he was used by God to really extend the reaches of the gospel in different areas. 
And so the third P is perception, our perception, because Saul was a religious leader. He was well-versed in Scripture. Um, however, he was also antagonistic against true Christianity. He put men and women in prison. And as we re react to different religious leaders, because how do we react? Some have more biblical knowledge, but promote beliefs different from our own. And we must measure Scripture with Scripture and evaluate what is the emphasis of our lives, of our ministry. Teaching and practicing all of Scripture or only certain portions. Sometimes we meet people who, who say they're Christian and they know a, a bit about the Bible, but sometimes they only have a certain emphasis. If you're in conversation with them, their conversation only tends toward one area of Scripture or one doctrine. Some who say, oh, you know what, you can lose your salvation. Or some emphasize this area, and that's all. Every time you talk with them, it's only that emphasis. And I think that isn't necessarily healthy because it, um, when you discuss with them, and some religious leaders even, it's arguing over only certain points or promoting their own position as only being right. And here, the perception Saul, as a religious leader, sometimes even as we as Christians can look at them and think, you know, we, our, our goal is just to prove them wrong. Well, you know what? That is not our desire, and that is not, as we look at the example of religious leaders, they kind of sometimes try to protect their own position. And we need to be careful of following after them, but be careful of them. Myself, if I say something that is contradictory to the word of God, you know, Say, hey, ask a question. Confront of that. Oftentimes, it's simply interpretation. But our interpretation always affects our outcome, understanding of what the Word of God says. But Saul was a bad example. Let's look at a, a good example. And hopefully, you've had good examples in your life. Um, my, um, um, and people who oppose Christianity help people grow spiritually, challenge our beliefs. There is benefits to those who oppose Christianity because it helps us understand truth, identify false teachers. But good examples, and as you think about good examples, Philip is a good example. Um, our oldest son, Riley, got his permit, and he's learning to drive. And it's interesting because uh, there will be good examples of driving, bad examples of driving. And I've helped other people drive, and it's like, oh, my goodness, it's scary. But I was like, okay, he's got it down pretty good. You don't have to run to the sidewalks. He should be pretty decent if he pays attention. But as we look at good examples in our lives, and here's a, I was thinking about um, this uh, one. There's a researcher, Peter Fong, who has given new meaning to the expression happy as a clam. The Gettysburg College biologist stumbled onto the fact that mollusks produce 10 times their natural rate if Prozac is dumped in the water. Those of you who don't know who, what Prozac is, it's uh, just a, um, a drug used to help uh, really increase, uh, they call it kind of a happy drug, but it is to help antidepressant. But Fong was pursuing um, research on the basic nervous system of fingernail clams when he discovered that if he dumped the antidepressant into the water, the clams would start reproducing madly. It's a piece of wonderful science, and it sounds utterly ridiculous at the same time, Abrams said. Well, anyway... Um, it was, uh, this one fellow was listening to the radio and it happened that a local talk show came, host came on and was ranting about government waste of funds on useless research projects. He was objecting to Congress funding a project to a team in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania that was feeding clams and other mollusks 
um, large doses of Prozac to determine its effect on the sea dwellers. He cited this as an example of government waste. And so this guy, scientist, immediately called in on a cellular phone and he was on the air. And the host was very unhappy when he told him that this research was very important as it was essential to determine if Prozac was effective as a muscle relaxant. I know it's going to take a while for you to get that, but it's a pun. Muscle. So anyway, but the whole point is that isn't a good example. Huh? <laughs> a good example as we look at it um, being God used Philip as a positive example. And so positive things, using that as, as a positive, turn that around. Stephen has just died in mourning. And then all of a sudden there's a quick transition to Philip. As we think about what Stephen did, it, you would think that Scripture, Luke, would have emphasized, wow, he was a martyr. He gave his life for God. And you know what? He should be kind of exalted, lifted up. Isn't that what we do sometimes? You know, someone does something and we you know, hold them on a pedestal. We, build, we create statues. We... We want to remember that because we have such short memories. But here in Scripture, it just keeps moving. And I think as we look at that element in understanding that it isn't that it wasn't for a waste, but yet God is the emphasis, not human uh, contribution to God's ministry. And as we see here, God used Philip as a positive example. First of all, his movement. And movement in that he was willing to go wherever God directed. As we look at Verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ with him. And I totally forgot to put a map up. I was going to put a map of Israel. Remember when it says to go down to Samaria. You're starting off at Jerusalem. And if we were to look at a map north of um, Jerusalem, Samaria is north of Jerusalem. So how do you go down? Well, it's because of elevation. Remember, Jerusalem is higher than in elevation than some of the other cities. So even if you're going north, you're going down. And so that's where sometimes people say, well, how can that be? But it's because of elevation. If you think about Flagstaff, Flagstaff is north of Phoenix. But um, it would be going down anywhere near there. Like we say, go down to Phoenix because it's south. But you would also go down to um, what is uh, south. In elevation, if you're at a mountain point, you would go down south to areas around that. So it's important as we understand in Scripture, it says that. But, but the... W- the fact is the willingness of Philip of moving. He went to an area, Samaria, that was disliked by the Jewish people. And they were seen as half-breeds. They were seen as ones who, who didn't, um, were separate and distinct from the Jews. But he demonstrates a willingness to go where God leads and to be used by God. The second thing we see here is the message. And the message that he preaches is exclusively the message of the Messiah. If you see verse 4 and 5, it says, So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the message of good news. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. He didn't proclaim something else, but he proclaimed the Messiah specifically. And so the message was that, he talked about demonstrates the love of our lives. What we talk about demonstrates the love of our lives. He didn't preach about teach other teachings. He didn't preach about uh, this, but he spoke about Jesus, the Messiah, what he had done, that he had died, that he rose again. And often in our lives, if you talk, if you talk to me at any time, you'll find out that I like food. 
I like different restaurants. I like going different places. But if you talk with me and I never talk about Jesus, I never talk about spiritual things, then you might wonder what's going on. Well, food is good and, and fun and different people. I like cultures as well. You learn different things. But if I talk about those and not about Christ, what is the purpose? And it's the same way as we think about spiritual things in our lives. The message here, how God can use Philip um, and God in a positive manner in our conversation, Jesus must be brought up. And we must learn to naturally incorporate the message of Jesus into our lives. Because each of you have a circle of influence. Each of you have things that you're good at. You might not realize it, but you are. Maybe you're simply a positive person. Maybe you're one who is able to accomplish things. Maybe you're a good driver. Maybe you're one who um, does things well because you can remember. Some of it is just on personal experience. You have, some of you who are older, have experiences that you can share with other people. And simply based upon the fact that you've lived through things that are difficult, that alone can help you share with others. Uh, maybe about Christ, how God, you know what, I, you can look back and see that you've gone through a difficult childhood or you've gone through something difficult, but yet looking back at it now, you see that God had a purpose in that. So the message, and then finally the ministry. The ministry was, as we see, God used him to perform signs and wonders and miracles. People were healed, and these were authenticating gifts given specifically to the apostles for the work of the ministry. And these acts provided tangible evidence that Jesus was the Savior and the Holy Spirit was present in their lives. See, what happens is you can claim to be someone great. You can say, oh, Jesus is alive and people will be, you know what, I don't believe you. What authentication do you have that God, you're following Jesus Christ? But all of a sudden you do something, you heal someone, you get people's attention. If I were in the medical field and, and um, you know, and uh, how do you prove that you're an MD? Well, I have this... Uh, this um, diploma from Google that says I, I'm an MD. Well, that wouldn't, you know, most of you wouldn't go that and, uh, and agree with that, but you have medical school. But then also you are able to dispense meds. Oh, yeah, I can tell because of your signature. You write like a doctor, right? But understanding there is an authentication that comes with that to be able to sometimes experience. If you were to able to work in computers, we talked about that one week, you know, okay, well, here, can you fix this? and you show that you're really adept at computer skills, guess what? You are going to be able to be demonstrated. I was reading a book about, um, it was, uh, are you smart enough to work for Google? And it was interesting because some of the interview questions that they would go through, one of them was, okay, suppose you're shrunk down to the size of a nickel, okay, and, you're put you, and they put you in a blender. How do you get out? And sometimes they don't want the right answer. They just want the thought process of think abstractly because some of us like, you're going to die. I'm sorry. There's no way I'm getting out. But if you, you have to ask questions. Same shape, dimensions. If you're the same density, then actually you can jump out. Um, or maybe you try to block the blades. You're, you're the size of a nickel. Well, as they turn it on, you know, you're going to get, uh, it's like, what's that joke? What's green and goes 60 miles an hour, a frog in a blender? But you're going to, you know, be the, in the blender. But I don't know how we got on the frog in the blender. But, but my point is, as we think about the authentication, what it is is to determine that you're a believer. And in the ministry here, uh, Philip was given that authentication because it provided tangible evidence that God had empowered him and given him this ability. 
And the ministry here was led to salvation and baptism of men and women. If you look at verse 12, it states and says that here, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The ministry that Philip had wasn't just about healing people. The ministry was so that they could understand about who Jesus was so they could trust and have faith in him. The last example we have or excuse me, is that God uses Simon. Now, it's not Simon Parker, our son, but Simon Magus. And Simon Magus, as you think about it, Magus is where we get the word magician but um, in Greek, but caution. This is a cautionary tale because in verses 9 through 25, we have this individual who is well-known, especially in first-century records, apart from the historical documents of the Bible. He was known for a sorcery, his pride is influence with the people. As we read through, it states and says, looking at verse 9, A man named Simon had, pre- had previously practiced sorcery in the city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be someone great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with the sorceries for a long time. This was not just some newbie on America's Got Talent or, or some other show that came on the scene. This was someone who had sorcery powers and was doing some of these abilities over a period of time. So he wasn't just some young person. But what we see here is God uses this individual as an example. Well, and I would say of caution. First of all, pre-conversion. And these aren't very creative um, labels, I'm sorry, in your notes. But if you look at pre-conversion, just simply before the for the conversion as we see it. Simon was an influential individual. Verse 10 and 11, we see here, it says people paid attention. He was popular. He was famous. He was well-known. I could say names. If you're into sports and I said a name, uh, like um, I was trying to think of, um, oh, that's terrible. I could say Anthony Davis, and you'd, you'd probably know who that was if you knew about basketball. But Kawhi Leonard, that's what I was trying to think of. Because Kawhi Leonard, if you pay attention to sports, he was just traded to the L.A. Clippers. But that would get people's attention. If I were to say uh, s- someone else famous in the world of food, okay? If I were to say, um, like Bobby Flay. Maybe you've heard of Bobby Flay. Let's beat Bobby Flay, you know, food. And now you all get hungry. It's like Pavlov, instant salivating, you're thinking about food. If I were to say... Um, someone else as far as in a circle of influence. If I said Steve Jobs, you might know who that is. But they garner our attention because, oh, you know what? They're famous for something. And here, Simon, his name, when they said his name, he was recognized. People understood who he was. And they believed that he had supernatural power. And it's important for us to understand that God can use anyone, rich or poor, unknown or famous, Philip was used by God to deliver the message to all, and Simon, this individual, believed. It says in the text, as we come down in chapter 8 and uh, verse 13, then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. That's all the text says. Now we come to conversion. It says, B is conversion, where he believed and was baptized. And this would have been a great testimony for God. And many would view this as an opportunity to have greater influence in the region because of Simon's past. What often happens is when a well-known individual comes to Christ, they become like the poster child. 
And uh, if you think about it, if I were to say a name in Phoenix, and or even in general, Alice Cooper. Okay, you've probably heard of him, but he was uh, he became part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And some churches might have had him, oh, we want you to come and visit us because you're well known. And uh, just to how God worked in your life. But that's not necessarily, this is actually a warning, be careful of this, because the words of Luke, as he states that Simon was amazed by the great power of the works being performed. Philip he was with Philip and the leaders as they're going around. It says that, that he followed and became a close follower. As the text, as we see in chapter 8, it says that Philip um, was preaching the good news. And after he was baptized, Simon, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded. He kept on staying with him. Now, what are they doing? And he was amazed at these healings. Was Simon Magus truly saved, and did he have an authentic relationship with Jesus? I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't state it clearly, but what we do know is that his belief appears superficial and inadequate based upon his actions and the basis of his emphasis. We'll see here in a little bit what takes place. Because, as we say, the post-conversion status, or after a person comes to Christ, the post-conversion, we see here in the text, there's no emphasis that explains to us, was Simon a true believer? Because that is a question of many of us. What causes a person who seems to, maybe they've grown up and lived like a believer, but then all of a sudden they follow after, they leave their faith. Or maybe someone comes to Christ, you know, and then something happens and they, they we call them a carnal. But did they leave the faith? Were they ever in the faith? That is the question. And here we see what takes place is, what is emphasized in this text is the sin and error of Simon's actions, especially because he was in a high-profile position. He was with uh, Philip and these others, and he's there when Simon, Peter, and John come. And what takes place is the laying on hands to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John come down and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it isn't the gift of healing, but it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. To authenticate that the Samaritans had re truly received the ministering word of Christ. And for Jewish individuals, that was sometimes hard to understand because they thought that salvation was only to the Jews. But the emphasis, salvation came to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles or to anyone else who is not a Jew. And in Ephesians 2 we learn about this new creation because there is saved Jews and saved Gentiles coming together under one. Paul talks about it later, about breaking down the wall of separation. Because Jews, as a very prideful people, they were God's chosen people. And so, hey, look, we have the word of God. They're the ones who receive the miracles. Imagine if you had that history. If you're a non-Jewish person here, um, guess what? We don't have that history per se. And so, but what we do have, though, is that we come into the family of God, and because of the work of Jesus Christ, salvation is provided to all. And here, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sins. And we see here, Simon makes an attempt in his actions. It says he believes, but what he does is he sees what takes place and this confirmation to the people and the apostles that the object of their faith was correctly placed by Simon Peter and John by giving the Holy Spirit, the gift of the, that is the Holy Spirit. And 
these men were witnesses of the superficial act of all of a sudden Simon says, now, hey, wait a second, here's some money. Give me that gift. And Peter responds, and as we read the text, it states and says, but Peter told him, may silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. What happens is Simon is confronted and he is removed from any public ministry in the sense that he, he no longer has a part of them. And it reminds us of Acts 5. It reminds me of Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. Say, so, wait a second, here we are. This sin is dealt with. And he's told to repent because of his poison of bitterness and the root of sin in his life in verse 24. And all that we are given by Luke is that we're only left with the words of Simon asking that others pray for me. He says in the text, and he says, pray, um, pray for me, where it says in verse 24, Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. And we don't know if that's an authentic, really, forgiveness or not. If you look at it, it, it is, he, he tells, asks them for prayer that there is no punishment almost. And what happens is that there, is there any real repentance by him? We don't know. What, was he really saved? We don't know. But I think it's a, a message of caution. Because there are going to be some who come to Christ. Some who... Maybe they, they come from a background of, wow, they were such antagonistic to the gospel. Or maybe they have all these ministry skills and gifts. When a person comes to Christ, there should be a time of spiritual growth and a pause. Here at Grace Baptist Church, a person comes to Christ, we don't immediately, oh, wow, that person um, has all these talents. Let's put them directly into ministry. If we look even at the example of Saul, when he came to Christ, he was not, he himself removed himself and studied scripture. He was not immediately put in the public eye. And here, it should be a caution for us because by the fruit, by the evidence, um, will they follow after Christ? There are some who fall. And that's why we shouldn't follow people or spiritual leaders, but we follow after Christ. And when people who externally look like believers sin, it affects unbelievers. It affects believers. Salvation is of the Lord, but it's important to produce good fruit, and our lives will give evidence of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. See, what occurs is it is sad when people who grew up um, following after Christ, maybe they grew up in the church, and they live like, quote-unquote, a good Christian, but when they leave and behave like ungodly sinners. We question if they lost their salvation. Were they carnal Christians? Or were they even believers in the first place? And as we, as we approach the scripture, I think it's important that we constantly evaluate in our own lives. Where are we at? Are we willing to follow after God? May we never arrive at the point where we think that we're, we're God's gift to mankind because of what we can do for him. If anything, we should understand... God, I'm willing to follow you. My, the desire that God has is obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. It was told, Samuel told to King Saul, 
And what occurs is that we must, we're willing to sacrifice. Sometimes we're willing to sacrifice money, sacrifice our time, but obedience, reading the word of God and praying, evaluate our spiritual lives. And that's why it's important to measure, to allow us to be in the word of God. Sometimes our lives get busy, but as we read the word of God, it penetrates our heart. The Holy Spirit is able to convict us or to motivate us or encourage us. And so we must remember that salvation is evidenced by our faith in the object and work of Jesus Christ. Never compare ourselves to other spiritual believers. Sometimes we think, I'm okay because I'm better than so-and-so. Or, man, I'm nothing because look at so-and-so. I could never live up to that person's spirituality. Well, you don't have to. It is God who chooses to use us, and we must be available for his service no matter whether we believe we have the ability or not. We must submit our will to God and tell him that we're willing to be used by him. When we submit our lives to God, he can use us. 